What if you could learn from physical product entrepreneurs that have risen up from the trenches to dominating their market by creating successful physical product brands? Well, this podcast is hosted by me, Kanoe Campbell, and it's about breaking the mold to becoming a smarter, savvier, and better product entrepreneur. You discover how to take physical products from concept through launch and to scaling up from physical product entrepreneurs who've taken their revolutionary ideas to 1 million, 10 million, and 50 million plus in revenue businesses. You'll also join me in my journey to build a million dollar physical product brand business in a year, where we both will learn about crowdfunding, selling to retail chains, launching through marketplaces like Amazon, strategic partnerships, publicity, celebrity endorsements, and selling direct to consumers. So if you're creating or building a brand in the consumer package good space, in fashion and apparel, business products, or any physical product niche, listen in because we have you covered. Join the fast track to physical product business success. This is the Physical Product Business Podcast. I'm Kune Campbell. Let's get rolling. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Physical Product Podcast, part of the 2X e-commerce podcast. And today I'm gonna be we're gonna be talking about authenticity, brand authenticity, and about launching from zero to a significant amount of sales that actually brings in traction. I will not talk too much. Um, I have with me Scott Gabrielson, who is the founder of Oliver Cable. They're a minimalist, high-end bag and accessories company that launched, well, less than six months ago, if you're listening to this. And um, yeah, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Scott to the show. Hi, Scott. Hey, it's nice to be here. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Okay, could you take a minute or or two to to talk about Oliver Cable and and your journey thus far? Yeah, so we are here at Oliver we are a direct-to-consumer brand, um, really focused on a few realms. One is uh, transparency, um, the second is quality, and the third is, is really price. So um, the formation of the brand really came about um, due to the Rana Plaza collapse that happened in 2013, um, and our foray into understanding what happened in fast fashion. What we quickly realized is that this also was happening in the higher-end goods of the market, um, so we specifically looked at accessories as a way to, um, you know, figure out how we can disrupt it, why the markets were as high as they were, and what approach we wanted to come through um, to building our brand. So um, for us, we do all production in Italy, cut out traditional middlemen, um, and then sell directly online internationally. Okay, so you're a direct-to-consumer business. Would you, would you... How would you describe kind of like your vertical integration? How, how vertically integrated is, is, is your company? Um, what kind of control do you have with manufacturing all through to selling to consumers? And do you sort of sell, besides your website, do you sell in other channels? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's the line starting to get blurred a little bit in terms of what direct consumer really is. Um, a brand sell at wholesale, but say that they're direct consumer, which essentially juxtaposes the entire rationale for direct consumer. So for us, um, we do all sourcing of our own materials in Italy. Um, we purchase them and then bring them to our factory in, in also in Italy. So by doing so, um, we're able to cut out the traditional markup that happens when a, a factory does source materials for you. Uh, we also do all of our own design, all of our own um, sampling with our factories. Um, as well as our production. So it's shipped directly from a factory in Italy to our fulfillment center here in the U.S. 
And by doing so, we essentially cut out almost all the traditional markups beyond taking the raw material and turn it into a material that can be used for production. Okay, I'm, I'm on your website and you've probably, you've done something, you've revealed info, hardly any retail, I don't even think I've seen it on any retail site. And and that is you revealed your cost, your cost of production on your website to, to your consumer. How, why did you do it and um, has it, sort of derived any benefit so i think you, you have here traditional retail you know cost 12x which is a thousand three hundred one one thousand three hundred and twenty dollars and you know the your equivalent is two hundred and forty dollars and you break down the two hundred and forty dollars why why did you why take this route uh yeah it's, it's a great question you know for us um a big part of our story was focused on quality so um you know, it's, it's easy to talk through quality, but unless you actually reveal something, there's really no way that can, can, customer can um, believe you and, and be, um, you know, understand that you're being authentic and honest in what you're trying to say. So for us, um, you know, we're a brand that essentially came out of nowhere, right? So um, for a customer to, to know that we are quality, we have to reveal something to them beyond just telling them that that's the case. Um, you know, a, another big part of our story is based on transparency, right? We, we went into these factories in Asia and saw a lot of the brands that we loved that were being produced there um, in, in really subprime conditions and retailing for, you know, the 12X that, that we reveal on our site. And um, it, the, the, the realization that we made was that the high-end fashion space specifically is incredibly opaque. Um, due to the fact that a lot of these brands are, are large um, public companies and, and have no incentive to, to really be uh, authentic in that regard. You know, they, they rely on their brand reputation and heritage um, and can change really how they produce their goods. And, and the problem is that, um, you know, when you buy something of high price, you automatically assume it's of high quality. And unfortunately, a lot of times that's not the case. So for us, by, by being transparent in that regard, we could not only tell a fuller story in terms of what we were doing, um, but we also could build that relationship that essentially uh, proved that, that what we were saying was true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, yes, and indeed, you know, you know, value is only what is perceived to be. You know, and um, it's it's unfortunate what's happening in the high end of you know um, of, of the the market, but but that's just the way the way it is, really. Okay. Um. One of the reasons I. Okay. So, be, besides that, we had an earlier conversation, and you talked about your run rates. What What kind of run rates are you doing now? You know, less than six months in, in um, from a sales perspective. Yeah. So we're on a run rate to surpass um, a million dollars in, in retail sales um, using the run rate alone. So, um, you know, it's it's still early, but the response has, has luckily been enough. That's, that's good traction. So so where have you sort of seen traction? I, I know we're going to talk about social media, your amazing, amazing PR you've managed to achieve, you know, over a very, very short period of time to actually launch the brand. And um, yeah, so, so we're, we're going to talk about that. But where, what can you attribute your initial traction to? Yeah, so I, I think for us coming out of the gate, um, you know, no one knew who we were. So we, we leverage press to tell our story um, and really spread the word of, of all we're about. Um, you know, secondly is the fact that we really wanted to rely on, on a high quality product um, and use customer, 
customers as as our our medium to spread the word about the brand. Right. Uh, so we spent a lot of time focusing on design and quality in that regard. Um, so the initial customers that that learn about us through press um, became our biggest channel and biggest supporters of, of really you know initiating the next set um, of sales for us and, and that conversion. Um, luckily led into us growing our social media and it's kind of been a, a circular um, route in that regard. Okay, would you say press has been more important than social media over the first, over your, you know, this first period, this this first phase of growth in, in the business? Uh, I, I would, um, just due to the fact that, um, you know, there's a lot of brands that launch every day uh, through social and it's it can be really challenging to get your word out there. Mm-hmm. Um, given the that a lot of these um, you know, social platforms don't do a lot in terms of discovering brands. Mm-hmm. So if you have no presence um, really anywhere, it's hard for you to get discovered on social media. Yeah. We think social media is a better medium for other things than actually okay. being discovered. So, so social media really would amplify all of the other things you're doing, like, like the press or, or your design. Okay, so a few months ago, or about six months ago, I had the founders of linja i hope i pronounced it well they um are the scandinavian heritage type brand and um they did quite well raising capital from kickstarter and indiegogo and um they happen to be you know crowdfunding experts now um why didn't you take the route you know of of crowdfunding for 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 a liver cable because it just You've, you've got a limited number of SKUs, really, really good designs, great attention to detail, made in Italy, great story, perfect candidate for, for Kickstarter. Why, why didn't you go down the Kickstarter route or the yeah. crowdfunding route? Uh, it's, it's a really good question. And, and we really uh, respect Linear and, and what they're doing. Um, and they've been able to do an incredible job using that platform. For us, um, it just didn't, innately feel like it was the right medium for a few reasons. One was the fact that we really wanted to build this into an authentic, long-lasting brand. And we've seen a few brands struggle from converting from Kickstarter um, into um, uh, the e-commerce world without having another medium that helps sustain their growth. So, um, you know, for instance, uh, some brands, they do incredibly well on Kickstarter. Um, the problem is, is that they often become Kickstarter recognized brands mm. and it's hard for people to recognize them beyond that initial medium. So for us, um, you know, we had conversations with a few individuals that did a few brands that had done incredibly well on Kickstarter, um, as well as a few others who decided not to go that route. And, and through those conversations, we realized that, um, you know, from a press perspective, as well as a customer perspective, we really wanted to be recognized as a fashion brand. Mm. And by doing so, it, it seemed um, best for us to go directly to the customer using our own site versus leveraging something like Kickstarter um, that does a great job in, in building companies and brands. But um, for us, wanting to be really taken seriously as a, as a fashion brand was probably not the best medium for us to go through. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so let's rewind um, at the start of... <clears throat> Just prior to launch, you probably had a number of like options, you know, um, you probably had social, you had press. What options, what were your top, say, five options with regards to launching the brand that you sort of considered will 
drive you know those initial well just drive brand awareness and sales what what, what were the options we, we really looked at three different tiers um, and ones that were not going to be incredibly uh, expensive uh, or cost cost prohibitive for us to do. the first one was through email so we we built into our site a uh, essentially a referral program or referral mechanics that when people landed on our um, our homepage they would go through this introduction which would essentially incentivize them to spread the word they would get rewarded for referring other individuals. Um, so that really helped us build our, our email list nicely before we actually launched. How, how big is your email? How, how big is your email list? How, how big did it grow your email list? So when we launched, we were at uh, about 10,000 emails and now we're at 30,000. 10,000 at launch, wow, wow, okay. And, and how did you drive traffic to the website and what were the conversions? Let's look at the, the, the conversion math there. So. So for you to have driven, okay, so, so how many, how did you start to drive traffic to, to the website? Sure. So we, again, leveraged a, a few different mechanics. One was that we used our personal connections. So we reached out to individuals just to let them know what we were building, why we were building it, and mm-hmm. if they could help us out by spreading the word. Um, secondly was that we relied on press, again, before we even launched to tell them what we were doing and why mm-hmm. we were doing it. Um, and we were featured in a couple of nice publications that, that garnered some great traffic to the site. Um, and, and really the third thing was, was focused on um, social in the sense that we wanted to, to build a, a, at least a small following on social before we launched. Mm. Uh, so when individuals came to our site and went to our social media, they understood that we were a, you know, a, a real brand and not um, one that was going to fizzle out. Um, in that sense, we, we feel that customers want to cheer for someone that they have confidence in. Um, and we wanted to make sure that they had that confidence in us before we even launched. Gotcha. Because I'm, I'm, I'm on your Instagram. You've got 20,000 followers, 21,000 followers on your Instagram. And it, it kind of reminded me of another brand, um, Herschel and Company, um, where it's all about lifestyle. So they, they do maybe three or four lifestyle photos. And the next thing would be an image of the product. But it was it's more about the Herschel life, you know, sharing the life of travel um, as against, um, you know, um, selling products on social. Um, it's just set out to inspire. So could you sort of break down the... Yeah, your your thoughts on on how you sort of developed your 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 Instagram and whether it's been instrumental at all to to the to the growth you you're seeing. Yeah, it's a it's a really good point and a really good question. And Herschel is is a brand that we love and we're inspired by. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for us being a direct consumer brand, we knew that we did not have a lot of opportunities to really tell the lifestyle um, of what we want to portray ourselves as as the brand. So. Um, we weren't going to have our own brick and mortar, at least at the beginning. So we didn't have that medium to do so. Um, we weren't selling through retailers, so we couldn't leverage their reputation to do so. And our site is not incredibly robust in that sense. So we needed to lean on something else to help tell that story um, and really tell the story of, of who we are as a brand and what our aesthetic stands for. So um, before we even launched our social media, we actually reached out to about 100 different influencers. Um, individuals that were between 20,000 and 200,000 followers. 
um, and uh, really told them what we were doing and why we were doing it. Um, and spoke to them about how much we loved what they were doing and what their aesthetic was and what the, they stood for. Right. Um, and doing so, they uh, we also asked them if we could use their photos um, to as we build our community. Hopefully, it would continue to, to drive traffic to them as well. But um, we, we wanted to lean on what they were building from a content standpoint um, and to help us. And it was great from the reaction standpoint. Uh, they are all, you know, very happy that we reached out to them, asked them for approval. Mm-hmm. Um, when we actually started selling product and launching, we now had 100 influencers that we had built relationships with that we could send product to um, and help, uh, you know, tell our story and promote our story. So um, by doing so, you know, we were able to, again, leverage their network. They were hopefully able to leverage us as we've been continuing to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by growing essentially at, at a nice rate from Instagram, um, we've been able to you know build authenticity, build trust with the customer, as well as acquire new customers by people you know, recognizing and, and telling their friends about who we are and why they should follow. It's, it's a great strategy because it's, it's, it's taken the, the content curation standpoint without you know, abusing it in the sense that um, you know, it's, it's pleasant in the eyes to see it's the the your 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 palettes are very light um I, I i know it's intentional you know white skies blue skies and you never sort of verge outside of that and and that just so when you showcase a bag that's you know black it just stands out you know in in you know in the frame it is quite interesting and yeah. So, so you, so yeah. So you're working with with 100 so you know influencers and you know um, rehashing some of what they're doing, but you know deliberately choosing the right sort of um, you know um, photographs that match um, what your you know what 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 your brand is all about. So. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And, and, you know, another thing that a lot of young brands, uh, including us, struggle with at the beginning is just having appropriate and and nicely curated content. And it's expensive, um, to be frank, to to generate that all internally. So by us being able to lean on these individuals um, that we had already built a relationship with and, you know, showcase what they were doing as well, we were able to get over that obstacle um, which, you know, everyone's essentially present with unless they, they either have a photography background or have raised um, money to do so. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, um, so let's, let's talk about um, your, your so, so with regards to the email, 10,000 at launch, 30,000 now, how has it been utilized to, to actually gain traction for, 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 for sales from a sales standpoint? Do you, do you work with, um, any sophisticated, um, email autoresponder series, or do you just send out emails, you know, basic emails? What, what's, what's the deal with the email marketing and how, how important is it to, to growing all of the cable? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, we didn't know when we launched how important, uh, email would be but you quickly realize that it's still, for us at least, uh, is, is probably one of the best communication channels um, to interact with the customer. And the reason for that is when you're posting on social, um, you know, you have a lot of other things going on, a lot of other, inter- uh, you know, it's one, it's one swipe away from being into a completely another brand's universe. Um, with email, when, they're, when they open that email and are going through that email, um, 
you have a lot, a, a larger medium to tell whatever story you're trying to get across. Mm-hmm. Um, more clickable story because they're perhaps on desktop when they're reading it. Um, and, you know, versus something like Instagram where you're actually really not clicking into links or articles um, to get to websites. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it allows us to continuously keep directly communicating with that individual. Um, you know, to for them to delete it, it's, it's a lot easier than for them to just unsubscribe from it. Mm-hmm. So by us continually having an interesting story for them, and, and another big part of it is we don't overspam. We send very few emails. So when they do hear from us, it's usually for a pretty good reason. So by doing so, we build trust in them. Um, you know, their inbox is completely crowded. So we have to essentially earn our way into that inbox. Um, and by doing so, and by doing it in a thoughtful manner, hopefully we continue to be, um, and they, we continually interact, spark their interest, and continually be top of mind with them. Gotcha. So, so what does it look like if um, I go on the website and I sign up to your email list? When do I expect to, to hear from you as a brand? Yeah, so we essentially, and right away we have a opt-in um, a message that gets sent out to your email. So this just confirms that you do want to be part of, of our storytelling and, and our, um, our newsletter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also allows individuals to have a second chance to make sure that it's something that they want to be committed to. So once they do click through that, we know that they are interested in our story. Um, we know that they do want to hear more from us. And then we slowly essentially have a, a drip campaign that welcomes them to the brand, um, why they should believe in what we're doing. Um, and, you know, any new products that we have coming about, there are opportunities for them to join wait, wait lists, for them to be, um, you know, the first individuals to, to get access to a new product. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in that regard, we, we don't send an email every day. Uh, we don't actually even send an email every week. Um, and it's, it's just part of the reason that we want to be very thoughtful in how we communicate with them. Um, and we want to be very deliberate in that regard. So we, uh, we only send out when appropriate, um, and they'll only hear from us in that regard. Gotcha. Gotcha. <clears throat> okay. Now let's talk to what I've been really looking forward to talking, talking about, which is your PR tra- traction, um, on your, on the homepage, there's, um, for, for, for a less than six month old company with um, no VC funding or you know angel funding per se um, you've got Forbes you're listed in Forbes you've got GQ Fast Company WWD INC Yahoo C- CBS, CBS News and Cool Hunting really really top rated top tier one publications do you have a PR person? We do not have a PR person and we do not bring in a, a PR agency to help Okay, so how did you do it? <laughs> so it's, yeah, so uh, part of the formation of the brand was we knew that we needed to be able to tell a story. Uh-huh. Um, when we go out to press, they're not going to want to hear from us if we're just another fashion brand. So part of curating our brand was being able to tell this authentic and true story um, that had all the elements that make sense in a story, had someone that um, is, is, you know, someone that is essentially abusing the customer in one regard, um, and someone that can come in and and tell some facts that customers don't usually typically know. So, Mm -hmm. um, but we spent a lot of time making sure that not only we built a brand that we believed in and we wanted to exist, but also that was different and interesting. Um, and that, 
Um, you know, for press, that's something that when they're telling their story, they're essentially incentivized by clicks. By the amount of clicks that they get on an article is how essentially they're rewarded on their side. So we were very cognizant about that at the beginning um, and made sure that when we told our story that it would generate that for them. Okay. Um, secondly was we built uh, an email list of about 300 different contacts um, 10 to 15 at every publication and worked on building relationships with each one of those individuals. How do you build a relationship with, with them without, you know, p- before pitching your story, Vanjini? Yeah, so it, it was a great, that's, that's a great question. Uh, you know, part of it was before, six months before we even launched, I had um, reached out to each of those individuals and just told them a bit about what we were doing, but really wanted to garner how they think about storytelling, how they think about sourcing stories, if they had any tips. Um, You know, the individuals that I had reached out to were really, really well respected at those publications. Um, And, you know, I I really did and still do cherish their opinions. And I think when anyone's approached in that regard, um, they're willing to help out, especially when it's a brand that's new and a company that um, you know, we didn't have any real strong generalizations when we went in or opinions, and we were really just listening to what they had to say. And what, I think what, what was the what was one of the most important things that stuck with you that you know gave you these 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 results? Yeah, so there's a there's a publication out there. It's called Business of Fashion. Um, and Both, it's, yeah, BOF. Really well, yeah, BOF, and it's it's really well respected in the in the fashion space. Um, and I spoke with one of the editors there, who's I think one of the best editors um, in the world right now. And she essentially spoke to have hiring a PR firm if it was worth it or not. How storytelling works with editors, how you want to approach editors, um, and uh, you know that. Those points were, were so important for us. And another big part of it was their, her importance that she placed on launch, making sure that you have credibility when you launch, because then you can still continue to build those relationships with press. But if you launch and you launch to nothing, it's a lot harder to do so. So by using gotcha. the points that she said, um, we really spent all of our energy on, on building those relationships and making sure we weren't going to launch. I have a question, actually, too. One's got to do with the um, with the focus of the pitch to the PR or the story. Whereas the focus of the story, the design of the bags, you know, I think about GQ. GQ is all about you know the aesthetics and looks versus the story. I Robin Hood don't the Robin Hood story. You know, these guys are ripping you off. We're here to save you, and this is how transparent is. This is as transparent as it gets. These are the costs we're saving you. So, how did they sort of present? Because if if they was it one link into the other, or was it just one? Was it one sided in that sense? It's a it's a it's a brilliant intake, um, and I think a lot of people don't recognize is that press essentially is is in two categories. One is on the business and more technology side. And the other one is on the product or, or the consumer fashion. PR. Yeah. Um, so when we approached the fashion brands or the, sorry, the fashion publications, we knew that they were probably more interested in the story about our products, the quality of our products, the design of our products and having very high visuals and high quality photos. So that was when we, when we had those initial conversations, those were the elements that we really played up. 
when we went to the publications like Business Insider and Fast Company, those were much more interested in the story of the brand, what was going on from an industry perspective, an overview perspective, and how we were essentially disrupting it and what our story was behind that. So it was about you, you the founders, you the founder. It actually was and, very- And the story and, and the brand. It was actually very little about us. It was, it was more so about the evolution that has happened in the fashion industry over the last 20 years. I see, years. okay. Um, and those were the facts that we really played on. And we said, we're building this brand because of this evolution that has taken place. And we made it much more about that than about us. And I think those parts of it made for a more compelling industry-wide story um, that naturally put us at the forefront of of the article. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And with regards to the the business publications and business PR coverage, did that generate opportunities to, to Oliver Cable or was it more the consumer PR that that generated you know that initial traction yeah it's it's a it's a good question I mean from from a traction standpoint there is brand building and then there's conversion um, and then there as well just just uh, having a large audience right um, so for us the articles that led to conversion were traditionally not the ones you'd more so expect um, however, it, it really depended on what the audience was. So for us, Fast Company was incredible in a lot of different ways. One was the fact that the audience that reads Fast Company resonated really well with the story that we were telling. Um, you know, they were traditionally um, more entrepreneurial and design. Um, Silicon Valley types, right? Uh, large urban settings, mm-hmm. um, even beyond just Silicon Valley, um, but um, fairly well-educated um, had, uh, you know, fairly decent disposable income. And these sort of elements um, play on where our price point is and kind of what our values are as the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, other publications, it's, it's interesting. They, they lead to very little, but um, they might have a huge audience. So you get a lot of clicks out of them. So it's, it's helpful in telling the story, but it mm-hmm. may not be an initial push um, to doing that first inventory turn, if you will. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And I suppose my, my second question, um, which I forget now, if I, I think I'll, I'll loop back to, to it later. Um, yeah, so that was my second question. I had to, I wanted to t- ask you about um, the um, the uptake on. No, I forget. Okay, we'll, we'll just we'll we'll just move on. We'll we'll move on. Okay, so with regards to so so what does sort of what does traffic or where do sales come at the moment? Is how sustainable is PR? Um, because um, do you get the best initiative and then you know leverage on that to tap into other markets and channels, or um, is it a a dip? Is is it a, a regular drip in in that sense? Is it still can it keep the business afloat or you know set new targets? Are you looking at new acquisition channels for for Oliver Cable beyond um, PR? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So we we essentially see it three tiers. Um, one is is press. Okay. The other is is word of mouth, um, and the third is is repeat. So at the beginning, um, it's much more leaned on the press side. There is no really word of mouth to be spread, and there is no repeat customers because you haven't really sold it. Yeah, so, yes. That slowly starts to translate as you grow and as you get older. 
Um, so for us now, it's much more on word of mouth than it is press. Um, and we're slowly starting to drip now into the repeat customer category. So through the evolution of the brand and the company, we see those changing um, with a bit of ebbs and flows as we have new product launches, as we have an, another story to tell that's interesting and, and authentic. Um, but more so, you know, the repeat and the, the word of mouth are the two peers and, and tiers that we really want to lean on. And those essentially reflect us as our product and as our brand. Um, and that is why we spend so much time in, in making sure that we source factories that we really believed in, put out designs that we really believed in. Um, because, you know, you can have a, a great um, press launch, but if your product's crap, um, you're still going to fizzle out. Um, Absolutely. You're so spot on because they're, they're both relatively cheap ways of acquiring customers. Word of mouth, your customers or, you know, people who know about the brand talking about you. Absolutely free people just searching for the brand coming back to you. And, um, you know, um, repeat customers are, you know, existing customers who want to buy. So how expansive is, what's the current size of um, your SKU? How many SKUs do you have? And um, what, what are the expansion plans like in the next year or so? So we currently have six SKUs. We'll be launching three more uh, November 15th. And then okay. on um, essentially really ramping that up as we continue to grow. So we want to at least uh, launch a new product every month for the next few months. And then a few products every month. And these are high fashion um, items, so they, they're, they, they, they're not really dependent on seasons, are they? Yeah, so a, a big part of, of our story was on accessories. And accessories essentially are the biggest growth drivers for brands, um, especially large luxury brands, for a few reasons. But um, one is the fact that there is not a lot of seasonality to it. Um, the items don't really change aesthetically on, mm -hmm. on what's pleasing as seasons change or as years change, mm -hmm. um, which is great because we really design from more of a, a timeless aesthetic um, and minimalistic uh, aesthetic in that regard. Um, and, you know, the, the other nice part of it is that there's no sizing. So um, we had confidence in launching without being on Kickstarter purely, you know, partly given that fact that we didn't have to create um, eight bags and eight different sizes like you would for, for shoes, for instance, um, which really takes the capital constraints down um, quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember the question. Um, the question that looped back into what you you um, talked about with regards to credibility. And um, when you mentioned um, the business of fashion, the, the BOF um, platform, um, so how do you build being a non-insider, you know, um, you know, just parachuted into the industry more or less. And so, so being, uh, you know, um, obviously fashion is, is your passion looks like it sounds, you know, you sound and you, you come across as, you know, someone who's really passionate about fashion and design. How do you get credibility, um, from people who've been to fashion school, you know, in that community, do, do you look, do you seek credibility from there or do you just look at the market? I don't think that we're really out to see credibility from the fashion world um, per se. We really want to build credibility with the customer. More than gotcha. That. So um, what they're interested in from a design standpoint um, or a story or a price standpoint um, is more what we are concerned about and interested in than mm -hmm. what um, you know the fashion schools might be perhaps talking about at that point. 
And a big part of us building that credibility was by focusing on our transparency. So telling the story behind our products and the pricing of our products. And even if a customer had no idea who we were, um, that transparency allowed us to build that honesty and credibility with them. Um, even though they didn't know who we were and we weren't fashion designers that came out of some amazing school or some amazing brand. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the luxury brands are, are charging so much and, you know, you're here giving, you know, just giving the full picture and, you know, um, giving your, your full picture. So, so transparency, you know, really trumps. So, so yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Okay. Um, right. So one final question um, for people listening, um, yeah, I really want to talk about um, fashion today, you know, fashion, because I don't, I think the the term e-commerce has been, you know, um, sort of, it, it's, you know, with, with, with Shopify and um, several other e-commerce platforms, you know, around, it's been kind of like, um, it's been overused, the word, you know, so I, I, I view people like you as, you know, um, you know, um, well, product entrepreneurs um obviously in fashion it's a lot more emotive in in terms of um the decision making of what you want to put on your back or you know what you want to wear or what you want to carry um so in 2016 and and beyond what are your thoughts on um on fashion on fashion e-commerce on on how to on on just fashion products rather than fashion e-commerce because um i think you're going to go beyond well do you have any plans of going beyond fashion like you know herschel for instance herschel is on asos.com i was at the airport you know um the other time i saw herschel bags you know in the luggage store so does oliver cable actually have you know any plans with regards to you know, um, actually distributing, you know, Oliver Cable, would that sort of um, go against your pricing from a direct-to-consumer standpoint? From a, from a distribution standpoint, uh, we would probably shut down the brand before we would go wholesale uh, because well, it, it goes completely against the, the entire proposition and the values of what the brand stands for. Um, if we're going to talk about passing along value um, and, and cutting out traditional markups, we, we can't sell it wholesale. It just it doesn't allow us to, to do so, um, which is great because the traditional brands that do do so, uh, they essentially cannot propose um, products that have a, a, a lower price to quality ratio, if you will, than what we're doing. Um, no one can really build and sell a high quality higher quality product than we can at the price that we're selling at. And it's just purely because of the business model and the way we have it structured. Gotcha. Um, in terms of, you know, just just talking on, on Shopify, there are a lot of you know, e-commerce stores, if you will, that are popping about um, because Shopify and other platforms make it really easily to do so, um, which is great because it really cuts down the barriers to entry and the like and, and allows traditional incumbents, like the ones that we're essentially um, calling out, if you will, um, to to be taken down um, in a sense that um, they don't have these barriers that, that customers or that, that individuals and entrepreneurs had before. But, but part of the also the struggle is that um, given the lack of investment that is needed, 
um, a lot of individuals or, or brands are coming about that aren't um, trying to build a long-term sustainable company or brand. And that's where our entire focus is on, um, is, is building something that's going to go into the future and, and continually introduce products that, that we love and that they love um, with having brands and, and e-commerce shops pop up and down all the time. It can the, the noise can get so high just due to that low entrance. So, um, you know, it's like everything has got its pros and its cons, but we think that transparency in general and, and breaking down those barriers in general um, will always be a force for good uh, above evil. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's it's a great way to to um to conclude that part of of the show. And you know, I like to ask um guests just three questions in the lightning round. And, um, and then we'll wrap up the, the, the show. Okay, so I'm just gonna ask three questions and um, if you could answer them in, in a single sentence, it'd be brilliant. Are you ready? Okay, brilliant. Um, what are your future plans? Uh, domestic growth. Okay, fantastic. What are the three indispensable tools for use for managing your business? Text expander, okay. virtual, virtual assistance, and send later. And send later. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Um, final question. If you were to choose a single book or resource that's made the highest impact on how you view building a business and growth, which would it be? Um, Walter Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Okay. All right. I think I have it there. Okay. Um, fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. It's It's been an absolute, absolute pleasure having you, Scott, on the show and um, for you sharing, you know, the story thus far of Oliver Cable. And, you know, I just wish you the, the very best. You've done a terrific job so far. And yeah, wish you and your team continuous growth. Thanks, Harry. All right. Cheers. Thanks. Bye.